This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. And I'm Chris Kreicho, and today we're going to have an argument. I'm Stephen Caradini, and today we are going to take the long view. We are going to be doing something we've never done before, which is extrapolating and imagining what a future would look like if there were a whole group of people of variable size, we will discuss the size (laughs) momentarily, who did adhere to a non-technologically focused slash technocratic milieu, as we've mentioned off and on throughout the seven seasons of Winning Slowly, and what it would look like in various numbers of years once they, they did whatever it is they're going to do. Right. So we're going to imagine. And the reason we're going to imagine is because there's a lot of people that critique, but there's a lack of imaginary. I brought this idea up to Stephen a couple days ago because I'd been thinking about this and thinking about what we want to do this season. And we've been, for good, in the weeds a lot, thinking about specific interventions, thinking about the limitations of specific interventions, etc. But from the outset of this season, We've wanted to imagine what a non-technocratic future looks like and dream of that and think through how how we might get there. But I think part of the work of thinking about how we might get there is thinking about what there actually is. And to my amusement, when I brought this up to Stephen, he said, but I don't have any concrete thoughts about what that is or how we do it. And I said, yes, that's the point. And, Indeed. and it's so easy to get hooked on those what should the intervention be questions that we forget that some of the work we have to do, as Stephen just said, is imagining where it is we even want to get to. And moreover, that sometimes asking what the intervention should be is still captive in its own ways to the assumptions of the existing milieu. And so the idea I posed to Stephen, and therefore what we're going to try to do for the rest of this episode, is think, okay, If a reasonably sized group of people of some meaningful amount of influence at a community level started today, because we're dealing with reality, we're not imagining an alt history where people have been doing this for the last 50 years. We're not imagining what if Alan Jacobs' protagonists in the year of our Lord 1943 had been successful instead of not. Although that would be fun. Yeah, that would be a great bit of alt history. And in fact, as far as art goes... It might be a really interesting piece of art for somebody to write that would be a great mirror on the world in which we do find ourselves, is to imagine our world today had we taken that other path. Indeed. But what will it look like on sort of generational terms? So a half generation from now, 10 years out, a full generation, 20 years out, two generations, 40, three generations, 75 to 80, four generations, 100 Go ahead and just skip a few. What what does it look like a century and a half from now if you had a real movement of people really influencing the course of our future history? So starting both at the local communal level, but also then on some of these grander scales, how might things play and what might things what might life look like in that time span? So Basically, this is an exercise in science fiction on air, which neither of us have actually come up with all the specific ideas of so far. So something radically new. I have no idea how this is going to go, Stephen. Indebted greatly to uh, 
Isaac Asimov's quirky and not altogether sane uh, idea of psychohistory and <laughs> all science fiction writers who project what the future will look like. Mm-hmm. So, 10 years, Chris. What do you think in 10 years a imaginative, non-technocratic group of people could achieve? I think that at a base level, the, the pendulum would swing a little bit from unfettered social media and technology like excess back towards the rights of the individual even if that's not like the ideal future Mm -hmm. end i think that's sort of something that could happen where you could start to see more laws like banning facial recognition software i could imagine that in 10 years there's a national law banning facial recognition software i could imagine in 10 years that there's a law that uh, governs personally identifying information in social media platforms. I can imagine that that law would suck, but <laughs> <laughs> I can You're imagine that there I can imagine that there would be one in ten years. Yeah, I can imagine many of the same things. I can also imagine this is part of what I was thinking about last night: the feel of things shifting a little bit for the especially the people who are doing that. So so many of the images we have of the future are bound up in for lack of a better example minority report or star trek style imagery of the computing devices and those have been enormously influential in the kinds of things people are trying to build but they also have a particular kind of feeling about them of this futuristic bent where everything is more technologized than it is today i actually would would question that based on i've now watched a lot of star trek and while star trek does have tricorders and spaceships it's actually (laughs) far less about the technologies than most sci-fi yes it's actually about first contact and how people interact with the other but what i'm getting at is not so much that as the assumptions about how technology works that sit in the background as the kind of substrate of that's how fair. most sci-fi works, including Star Trek. That's and I fair. think that's actually one of the things that I think could be interesting is a new imaginary, a a new, if quiet, substrate being formed for how people are thinking about what the next 10 years might look like. Mm. And the first thing I thought of was going to make all my Wendell Berry listener friends hearts just thrill (laughs) but i was thinking about an imaginary of a world where people have more of a habit of backgrounding these technological things where instead of the computer or the device or the smart car being at the fore they're much they're they exist kind of the same way that wheels exist and tractors exist but of people not ordering their lives around them. And the image that Mm. popped into my head with this was actually a pretty pastoral rural image. And I think Mm. that's somewhat telling that in general, we tend to oppose these kinds of things. So Mm. it's easier to imagine a person in a rural context having some of that kind of backgrounding attitude. But then I started thinking about and wondering what would it look like for a city's life to have more of that making secondary you don't have to think that hard because that's what tech wants it wants to be invisible like if you go think about google's toronto experiment they want to make tech all invasive and all invisible so that they can control everything right i mean that's what that whole freakiness of that city up in (laughs) in toronto is is the sidewalk labs thing is like 100 percent never think about the tech that surrounds you just live your life in ways that 
we can fix everything that's wrong with your life, you know? Right. So, and it's not exactly that that I have in mind, but well, I think but, that's an important danger there. Well, yeah, so that's, that's why I think that that's a totally possible thing. But I think a more productive way, a more positive imaginary way of thinking about this is not having every single streetlight have a sensor yes. on it, but to have a sense of what is actually necessary from technologies yeah, yeah, yeah. and what is not necessary. So I actually exactly think that there that. would be less technology. So I would mm-hmm. imagine that, again, I'm imagining a facial recognition law. That's sort of my my ground zero here. Mm-hmm. That could easily spread in 10 to 20 years over a recognition that there are a lot of reasons, moral, legal, all sorts of reasons that you would not want to have, you know, infinite perfect Wi-Fi. So I can imagine that there are places like coffee shops or uh, restaurants that will say, sorry, no Wi-Fi. (laughs) Right. Some of those actually already exist. Right. But I can imagine that that's something that would be more common in that people would say, okay, we're going to go into this space where we are doing something together that doesn't have to do with technology. And so I can imagine spaces in, in common life and... You know, it is not going to be perfect because cellular data is a thing. But um, the the social point of sorry, no Wi-Fi will be, hey, like, put your phone away, homie. Right. So I can imagine those spaces existing. And I can also imagine that there could be sort of this uh, sort of social shaming, which is not a positive imaginative thing in some ways, but is in other ways this sort of backlash against technology, not at the companies themselves, but at sort of like, hey man, do you really need to be recording this right now? Like, chill. Right. Maybe we could just go a moment without having everything categorized and cataloged. Yes. So I can I can imagine that there would be a social moment where we would say, look, when we're in a coffee shop, we don't do this. And right. not all coffee shops. I'm sure there – I can also imagine that there would be like a distinction between working coffee shops and mm-hmm. and social coffee shops, which Chris and I actually have longed for personally, which is why we're imagining it because we can already <laughs> imagine it and we want it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's an interesting direction though. The idea of the emergence of – one of the things we've touched on a couple times this season and last season in our saying no framing of things is – a recognition to the smart sidewalks and the smart street lamps and all of this a recognition that maybe those costs are too high and people just say, no, we don't actually want that. And so it's in some sense, I, I was imagining it initially as a backgrounding of it, but I actually think there's a way in which it should also be what we should imagine if we're thinking of what we would want to happen is a foregrounding of it. And a conscious decision away in certain cases. So the coffee shop example is a good one of there being the emergence of coffee shops as a norm that are third space coffee shops, not work here coffee shops. And right. that it's not that the work here coffee shop is bad, but that there's a recognition of the value of these things not trying to both exist in the same space because one of them can overwhelm the other. And similarly in the smart cities context, there are upsides there, but some of the externalities can overwhelm other things can lead to costs that maybe you just say, yeah, this isn't quite worth it. And just having that at the fore in these discussions that it shouldn't, that instead of it being assumed that a new technology is 
basically default good and therefore to be employed in your city, that it's much more of a conversation of, yeah, I can see how that would be good, but maybe we don't want it in this context for these reasons, or maybe we'll allow it in this part of the city, but we're not going to allow it everywhere. I think in that kind of first 20 years from now timeframe, that's the kind of thing I would see starting to emerge and to happen. And then I think also to swing back around, there would be different art in the science fiction world, especially because there would need to be. And I think one of the things I want to say to people, if you're listening to this episode and you happen to have an artistic bent is I want you to write stories that have this, that don't assume the current frame, that don't assume technological solutions and that aren't just dystopias because so often the critique that that's how art has functioned in this space is critically right. as look how horribly this could go. But one of the things I think we desperately need and therefore why we're doing this episode is a positive imaginary of, right. so to get to the coffee shop point again, right. the goodness of sitting down with nothing but paper and pen and a friend and talking and sipping coffee and not having a laptop, not having a Wi-Fi signal. Maybe yeah. we think, hey, let's put cell phone blockers on some of our coffee shops because we want to go all in on the no, you shall not in here. And sure. you can walk outside, but in here we're dampening it all. Yeah, I think that's a thing you can do. I, I also think one of the, the reasons that it's it's easier to write dystopias than uh, ambiguous utopias, to borrow a phrase from <laughs> The Dispossessed, which is not a book that really does this <laughs> it, it kind of does this. It, it tries. It imagines in in certain ways what it would be like if certain alternate economic systems were to happen. The, the characters are cardboard cutouts, but that's not the point. <laughs> so the dispossessed does this, and uh, a lot of Ursula Le Guin's work does mm-hmm. this. Um, it it speculates on what would happen if, right? Uh, but tries to do it in a what if this was normal or what if this was positive way? I'm also thinking of The Left Hand of Darkness, which is a profoundly strange book, but that's the point. And so it's harder to do that because you have to think through so many aspects of society or culture or your story right. or whatever, and you have to come up with different types of conflict, which is part of what makes The Left Hand of Darkness such a bizarre and fascinating <laughs> book. And so coming up with different types of conflict is hard because that partially presumes that we've had moral development along with uh, technological development, which I'm reading Confessions by Augustine right now, and it certainly seems like the moral development of (laughs) humanity has not progressed very far in 1700 years. You know, I I think that while Le Guin sometimes does that, I think you don't have to because of that point, because there isn't... mm, particularly good evidence of actual moral development. And we've we've learned a couple of things along the way, but we may also have regressed in other areas and so on. Yeah. To take an example of something that I think isn't doing this, but I think is illuminating in a different way. I read and quite enjoy The Expanse, which is not trying to imagine a non-technocratic future at all. It just assumes that we continue in much the same way. And hey, guess what? Humans do crazy, ridiculous things like here's an alien superpower. Let's throw a nuclear bomb at it and see how it reacts because we're humans. That's a thing that happens at one point in the series. It's I mean, that seems like something someone would try to do. Exactly what military industrial complex leadership would think. Yep. Right on target, guys. There you go. But one of the things the series captures, (laughs) 
very, very well is the constancy of human nature, even in radically changing circumstances. And so one of the things I think you could do, you do, as you said, have to do this incredibly hard work of imagining a totally different, I'll use the word again, substrate, a totally different background than is normal in most sci-fi, and that frankly is normal in our culture. And that's really, really hard work. But then the, the same conflicts become different in their own ways, the same kinds of basic internal human tensions and conflicts between humans play out in different ways because they're against that different backdrop because they have that different substrate that they're set against. And that is way harder work. It's a way higher lift, but if you can do it. Well, and also, so there's, uh, I'm I'm going to do that thing and reference a book I never finished, but <laughs> Kim Stanley Robinson wrote a book about what happens after climate change. And the answer is people be people. And the fact that it was so pedestrian and boring and people were still trading stocks and like <laughs> going around New York City, like I couldn't get interested in it because I was like, but the point this was- New York that, like, 21, 2150 or 2151. We'll, we'll link it. We'll in the have show it notes. in the show notes. Um, but I couldn't get into it because it was so pedestrian. It was like literary fiction. Like people were just living their lives with like- <laughs> gigantic ocean rise that knocked out the bottom levels of all of the skyscrapers and stuff like this. <laughs> and so they all went around in boats instead of cars. It was kind of funny. But anyway, the the point there is that to get to some of these things, you either have to A, just completely jump over some of the problems that we have now, mm-hmm. B, optimistically solve them, um, <laughs> or C, put us way forward into the future where like the thing happened and it was bad and then we got good again. And so I think one of the things that when you think about a non-technological future is that you have to address the issues that we are thinking about now and think about one, do we fix them actually? Or do they crater and then we have to go refigure society? Uh, I just contributed to a Kickstarter of a anthology of comics that is trying to think about post- apocalyptic positivism. Like, how do we survive Mm. after the apocalypse in helpful and good ways? And so we'll see if, I hope that gets funded. We'll link it. And uh, I hope that it exists and we learn about that and it's fun. So you kind of have to grapple with some of the things like, okay, so climate change, do we solve it? And I, I think, yeah, I think reasonably we can take a lot of steps in the next 20 years that between planting massive numbers of trees and cleaning up the giant ocean patch and things that do have interventions. Yes. Over a 20-year span, I feel reasonably certain that if we just continue with the amount of energy we have for interventions now, even if we can't stop Shell from being Shell, I feel like we could make some progress Mm -hmm. there. And so once you've gotten over that hump and you're out of the existential dread of we're going to overheat the planet, then what? Right. And so so you can jump it that way. Or you can just go, it's like, okay, it goes apocalyptic and then we're just going to rebuild it. (laughs) But I think you have to grapple with some of those things, even if you don't want to say like- Yeah, you do. Okay, we- we get out of this non-technologically, people just decide to band together and do this. Also a possibility. We decide to legally enshrine a technocratic regime that consciously rejects climate change. Also a thing that could be possible given the next 10 years of legal action. So I think there are some interventions you have to jump through to get to the 20 years, but then you get to like 40 years out. Mm -hmm. And so for me, 
the first phase is like, okay, so we're trying to adjust for the excesses of tech. So we put in some protections for individuals. We start taking collective action to be responsible for some of the things that we have screwed up with tech and or big oil or whatever. Once you jump over those humps and you, for this exercise, we allow ourselves to jump over those humps. Right. We out there in 40 years from now, so when our children are older than we are now. Right. As far from now as 1979 is from us at the moment, which right. is very close in some ways, but also, Far. have you read about the 70s? That right. was a long time ago in some ways. <laughs> Jimmy Carter was president. Uh, <laughs> right. There were 2,000 bombings or something like that over the decade. It's, it, was a, it was a wacky time. Yeah, there was – yeah, that's – we're going to link that article. That's – that's just a collective forgetting that mm-hmm. is amazing. But anyway, that's not the point of this episode. <laughs> 40 years from now, so 2060, it's easy to imagine for me that getting over some of these individual aspects, like saying, okay, like we've put in personal identifying information, protection, stuff like this, that people start trying to focus back on communities. And in the sense that I would love it if I'm 70 years old in 40 years that the community that I live in has enough of a evened out economy, and I mean that by it's not like spikily, unevenly mm-hmm. distributed across the country, enough of an evened out economy that my children can be anything they want to be and also do it in Phoenix. And so we could live near each other and they would have no problems with saying like, yeah, I've done everything I wanted to do achieve in my life and I live 15 miles from my parents or five miles from my parents, or whatever. Right. That's a thing that I think could happen. We could focus our energies that way and say, okay, how do we focus on place as a, not just and only as a rural concept, but and mm-hmm. not just and only as this urban placemaking sort of thing, but how do we meld these two ideas into this idea that if we if we move ourselves away from, A, the individualization of technology – So this force towards everyone is the individual. And we move ourselves away from this sort of heavily technocratized economy that is heavily focused on New York and Austin and Silicon Valley. If we spread that out in whatever ways that we were aiming to do that, there's lots of policy ways to get there. If we spread that out, then you cut down on, okay, like I am my own god. And you cut down on the the need to, like, I, I have to go to the coast to get what I want. And so those are things I would love to see and think we could focus our attentions towards. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's interesting there, though, is – and I say though – I don't actually think it's in contrast to that. I think it is an essential ingredient of that that you did not make explicit, so I'm about to. Technocratic frames and expressive individualism are mutually reinforcing. And I think that one of the things we have to do in imagining this kind of future is imagine how we both – consciously in terms of rejecting technological solutions to every problem and embracing other approaches that are not even solutionistic, but that sometimes just accept the limits of our humanity, that even at times embrace and rejoice in the limits of our humanity and the goodness of a world that is given to us, that we can do some things with, but that we should think of also as doing with rather than doing to. There also must be, I think, a diminution 
of expressive individualism and a conscious embrace of a more communitarian outlook. And by that, I don't mean a radically communalist framing where we submerge and eliminate the individual. There are societies like that that exist in the world and they have their own problems. We believe that the community and the individual are best flourishing as mutually integrated and supportive rather than one or the other dominating. But for our culture, we have this radical expressive individualism. And to get to a point where we're having the kind of life that you're describing, we have to be consciously fighting that, even as we're consciously fighting solutionism and technopolism. And I think doing that entails looking at all of those, and yes, our economic systems and all of these things, and thinking, how do we make it so that it is not just viable, because I think in many ways, in most parts of the country, not all, especially small towns, this has been undercut and degraded in many ways. But in yeah, most and I mean, small sized, towns are literally 60% of the country by volume. So Yes. It's a lot of the country geographically. In large parts of the country population-wise, though, what you just described is in Fair. principle possible today. The reasons people don't do it have much more to do not with the actual possibilities that lie in front of them, but with what we value as the good and how we pursue that and how we understand self-actualization and all of these things that we understand to be normative goods and how you achieve them. And so there has to be this shift in that as well, because you can do those things you just said in Phoenix today, but there's uh, a well, big but not really. on it. <laughs> not really. I mean, I'm I'm living proof. I'm sitting here in Phoenix. Why do I live in Phoenix? It's not because I want to live in Phoenix. Like, <laughs> I didn't even know where Phoenix was on a map until I got this job. That's true. <laughs> I thought Colorado was on top of Arizona. I just didn't go far enough west. The point here is that there are a lot of jobs that if you want to do them, you have to go places. I had to go, I left for grad school because the thing I wanted to do and I was really good at, they, there weren't any grad programs of, well, there may have been one grad program at the time, but I didn't want to live in Stillwater, Oklahoma. But, so there's, there are a lot of things that you can't do. Uh, I mean, and some of this is the diminution of, like you're talking about, like thinking about, you know, fame, right? Like if you want to be famous, right. you have to go to certain places. Well, maybe fame isn't the best thing that you want, and maybe we learn that. But there, you're right. There's also the costs of specialization and how that's distributed. Right. And so there's, to some extent, like maybe we're over-specialized. But at another level, part of the good of being in a, a well-developed economy is that we all don't have to be farmers, that's part of right. the, the joy of it. People who want to be farmers can. Right. If you're listening, Jake, farmers are good. We farmers don't dislike farmers, but I would be a sad, sad farmer. Right. None of us, uh, it, none of us want to be forced into a job that they don't like. That is... Yes. And I think that there are gradations of what that means. There are people who I know listen to this podcast... Uh, who faithfully go to jobs that they don't like because it supports their family, and that's what they get out of their job. And right. more power to you. I know who you are, and you're doing the Lord's work, very literally. The, the flip side of that, I think, is that it's much harder for us to do that when we have invested so much of our identity in our work. And when we're so caught up in expressive individualism, it's much 
harder to do what you just described because we have these existing values that, again, we take for granted. They're the substrate of our culture. They're norms. And undoing those makes it easier for a job to be just a job, if that makes sense. I I think that's fair, but... Even while I want to say that vocation is good and I'm glad to have a job that I like, there's there's some way we have to be able to hold those two things together that means a negation of the kind of radical expressive individualism. Right. But also, and and with it, therefore, a a diminution of the importance of job as sole community and as sole source of meaning, even while yeah. we continue to uphold the goodness of a job that is well aligned with your interests and passions and those things. I think that's it's, fair, but I think you're getting too much in the weeds here. What I'm imagining is a future in 40 years where someone says, I want to be X, and people are like, yeah, you can do that here. And it's a satisfying, good, mm-hmm. meaningful sort of thing, whatever that is. Maybe it's at a lower level. Maybe it's not famous. Maybe it's, you know, small. But I would love it if we built a future where the economy was set up in a way that the majority of things that you wanted to do, you were able to do. Now, do we, if we change what our underlying expectations of work are, then the different types of things you would want to do would be different types of things. Right. So, so there's, there's a mutual sort of spiral here in that if you change the sorts of focus on moving away from radically technologized, self-individualistic, extreme expressionism, mm-hmm. if you move away from that, people are still going to want to be things when they grow up, but they yes, may want to be different sure. things. Right. You know, right now it's really hard in some places to be a fireman if you want to be a fireman. In other places, if you say, I want to be a fireman, they're like, great, you're hired. This is a thing. Here's your suit. If the bell goes off, run that way. Like, and that's because they need them, right? And right. so I, I would like to imagine that this is an easier setup that whether it's because we have something like universal basic income, whether it's because we have uh, a much more normative approach towards debt or an abnormal approach towards debt, like the one that's in uh, the Old Testament or where your debts are just resolved every seven years. Like there's a lot of ways to get here, but I would love it to the point that the economy is not so much of this massively technologized ones and zeros thing that there are spaces in it for people to do things. In some sense, that there is space in it for people. For people. Because I think it's fair to say that one of the problems in a technocratic regime and in our current broadly construed, and yes, there are many exceptions and so on, but I'm, I'm making a broad construal on purpose and I think it's accurate. We often set the technologies and set the economy's outcomes as self-justifying. And I think that's one of the fundamental things that it took me a minute to see how to fit a non-technocratic frame together with what you were getting at. But I think the common thread that I see is that our approach to the economy and to the market has been that what the market wants inherently is good, good, bro. And that what technology wants to quote a very famous, what technology wants bit from wired from a couple decades ago, the idea that these things are self-directing, self-motivating, self-justifying, especially rather than saying market economies are good tools for a, an end that is not market economies. Market right. economies are not self-justifying. They are not their own ends. The end of them is a reasonably healthy, productive human society where 
productivity is not just make the market better, but make human lives better and more enjoyable and healthier and so on. And the same thing with technologies. I've been thinking a bunch about this in the context of things like programming languages, because I'm a nerd and I actually saw a fantastic set of slides, which I will include in the show notes, which was a programming language researcher and theorist quoting at length and riffing on Ivan Illich's tools for conviviality, asking, are the tools we're building in computing for software engineers actually tools for conviviality, or are they these kinds of things which become self-sustaining systems where no matter how much we invest, the solution is always more investment. And we're never actually achieving and saying, hey, we've accomplished what we wanted to. Let's call it good here and move on to some other problem or to not a problem. And I think that in both the economic structures, in the governmental structures that we embrace, that can be very similarly a thing where statism becomes its own end and self-justifying the government does it because the government exists to bureaucracies of all sorts and shrine themselves and perpetuate themselves in all of these kinds of things. We want to imagine a future where we're not assuming the self-justifying nature of these things, where we look at a, a new idea and say, nah, that doesn't actually seem like a net good or yeah, but only in these ways. And well, and I think, I think a lot of that happens because there's a sense that uh, I just listened to a big series on the Bible project on abundance and scarcity and Mm -hmm. how Jesus thinks about abundance. Um, And there's this sense that in the way Jesus talks about money and material possessions and food, that you're just, they're just going to happen to you. And the critique is like, but it don't. (laughs) And so... There's this sense that the ways that we think about the world yeah. and the outcomes we then attempt to have are aligned. So if we think that there is scarcity, we are going to do things in relation to how we think the world is scarce. And if we think the world is abundant, we are going to do things in relation to how we think the world is abundant. And I think that most of what we do with technology in solutionism is that we think that one, there are intractable problems in the world that we clearly haven't solved in the last 2,000 years, and so therefore technology must solve them. And that's where we came to solutionism. And it's sort of this failure to imagine that humans can be creative outside of technological milieus with the backing of 2,000 years of failing to be effective at certain problems <laughs> outside of technological milieus. So there's a reason we ended up at solutionism. But I think the goal now is having expended to a great degree, not nearly, sadly, the end, but expended to a great degree the the abilities and uh, low-hanging fruits of solutionism, we have to go back and say, okay, well, that wasn't it either. Maybe we yes. should try some other things. <laughs> and so I think that's what I'm, I mean, that I would hope for 40 years, but I would hope even farther for like 60 years is that we say like, okay, we've had computers for like 80 years now and we have self-driving cars everywhere and it's really convenient and we still have these problems, right? Like we're still, you know, having to maintain our things against climate change and like these people wanted to fund them and these people want to keep them going and yada, yada, yada. Like, so I think there's a point at which it's not only that, I've jumped from economy out of technology. It's that the ways that we think about problems with the current milieu of technology is in a certain vein. And so thinking outside of those, thinking about what if it was just like this, 
and it doesn't get there by technology or include technology? What are the goods we want that are outside technology? And if we can't get there by technology, which in a lot of cases we can't, what other things do we do to get there outside of technology? And, you know, that's that because we've not reached the end of history. We are not at the end of history as computers would want us to believe. Like we, you know, someone's going to come up with some new inverted form of mashed up communism and and democracy and we'll try that over here for a while and someone's <laughs> going to come up with some new communal style of radical x y and z and you know we're going to have monks living in skyscrapers and things of this nature <laughs> like people are going to come up with stuff but right. it's what goals that we want to achieve that re- in my mind really differentiate because if you look at all sci-fi I'm going for the longest monologue here if we go and look at sci-fi a lot of the ends that people want to achieve in sci-fi are in themselves machiny. Like we yes, want to build exactly spaceships. That. We want to go to other planets and build cities. And we want to uh, create amazing technologies. And we want to build AIs that do X, Y, and Z. Those are all good insofar as they have their just and right circumscribed purpose. But when I was thinking about what would the future that I would want in a non-technological milieu look like, it was, okay, what are the goals that I want regardless of how technology works? Mm -hmm. What are the goals that we're looking for in society regardless of technology? Because if you don't include technology in how you envision them, then that's partially non-technological. Not entirely (laughs) non-technological because we do live in this sort of technological frame, but the more you pull technology out of your vision of the good... You can eventually use technology to get you there, but you don't envision the future as framed by this technology. So here's a question that I've been mulling for the last few minutes that you segued into quite nicely. If we broadly societally shifted on this front, in 150 years, would we have colonies on Mars? Uh, Sure, why not? But what would those colonies on Mars be doing? Very different things. They would be doing very different things. Because I don't think there's any reason to not have technology as a good tool. Like, we're not telling you yes. to stop using pitchforks. Exactly. Right? I, I, I don't think there's any reason to stop using technology as a good tool. But I do think that what we have done is misplaced the nature of the tool. Obviously, that's basically the <laughs> summary of the last seven seasons. And if you pull that back out and you say, okay, like, what if we wanted to know more about Mars? What if that was a goal to, like, better understand the creation of the solar system? Well, you'd probably have to put a city on Mars, eventually. <laughs> okay, let's do that. But not for the goal of, like, cityying, but for the goal of knowing more about Mars. Right. And I think that gets at some of what I was gesturing toward in the very beginning of the episode, is that it's a reframing of the hows and whys, and the result is not that technology ceases to exist. Though some technologies probably would. We, they we would. talked a little about this, about yeah, rejecting technologies. I think that the the era we're living in of smartphones and Twitter, I think we're going to look back at somewhat oddly if we get this right. Now, it may be that we don't get this right culturally, and this just defines the next hundred years, and I think that would be a sad outcome. But if this kind of thing that we're thinking about where to come to play, our kids would look back and be like, yeah, that was really weird that you guys 
obsessively you checked know, these weird social media things and stared at your phones all day. It would be very much like how we think about the Wild West now. Yeah. Like, if you think about the Wild West, you're like, there was something romantic and fascinating about Discovery. Also would not want to do that. <laughs> that yeah. seems like a bad that, thing. That seems like, why did like, you do it that way? Maybe yeah, not. Like, mm-hmm. why Why did all of you have guns and just shoot each other terrible to solve plan. problems? That's not how we That's solve problems. That's not how you solve problems, guys. And I think along those same lines, thinking to a future where, yes, we are colonizing the solar system and exploring and building new cities and new trying new things in those new cities, but going with a humility of remembering the limits of humanity and recognizing that technology doesn't change human nature. It magnifies yeah. certain parts of human nature. It quiets certain parts of human nature, both to good and to ill, but that if you're going with that frame, then yeah, we have colonies on Mars. Maybe my great-grandchildren are on on Mars. I, I think we're about 100 years out from like sustained, normal yeah. life on Mars, not like exploratory like scientists. Right, yeah. But in that frame, we can imagine, and I want to dig into Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy because by all accounts, he does some of this kind of imaginative work there's a, around there's a lot these questions of Mars books that are really good for this. Yeah. And I think there's work that we can keep doing there to say, what would it look like with a non technocratic non these solutions justify themselves just by existing right. frame. And so we're well out of time here. Well, I think, I think we can do a part two of this because I have a bunch yeah, of stuff so. that I didn't get to yet. Same. So, so we'll be back next week to talk about the 80 and 100 and 150 years, not just about this little interlude about Mars. Yeah. Mars is cool, though. Mars is cool. And I actually think that is probably a useful lens in some ways of what yep. what do things look like on Earth in small towns and what do things look like in small towns on, on Mars. Mars. We have to invent artificial gravity first. Anyway, <laughs> the song at the beginning of the episode was Hayato's Theme by Homebrewed Universe. We used it with permission. Thank you. Uh, please don't use it without permission. Also, Homebrewed Universe is an awesome band name. True story. Thanks, as always, to everyone who sponsors the show, including Nathaniel Blaney. I realized a couple of weeks ago that I really need to update our Patreon goals because they're basically four years out of date. Pay no heed to the Patreon goals, everyone. We're winning really slowly. Really slowly, as always. You can support us at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar winning slowly. Dollar Dollar sign sign. winning slowly. There we go. (laughs) I mean, if you type dollar winning slowly, it'll it'll do something. Fair, yeah. 404. (laughs) Right. If you want to track us online, please don't. However, if you would like to contact us online, you can see either of our websites, stephencaradini.com and chriscrito.com, which have various contact points for each of us. You can see the show website at winningslowly.org, and you can, of course, email us at hello at winningslowly.org or use those dreaded abominable things that are like the Old West, Facebook and And Twitter, Twitter. where we're winning slowly on both. But I won't see them. Or you can just keep liking our old posts on Ello because people do that, so... (laughs) If you're out there listening, thanks for coming to us from Elo. Huzzah. As always. As always. Thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.